the last talk that I gave. I'll continue with that this evening. And it was a bit like a, uh, if you watch TV shows, some series, each show is complete. And it's kind of a new whole episode, like a little movie. And others, you kind of have to get caught before the punchline. So this is somewhere in between. So if you recall, this is, we're exploring the sutta on the bamboo acrobat, or the Sedaka Sutta. It's a story of the lead acrobat and the assistant, Meta. And so I think their act is when going up a bamboo pole. She stands on his shoulders, they go up, do an act, come down, and leave. Get paid and leave. So that's a parallel for activities in our lives. And it can also be sort of a metaphor for, for our path, for walking through life in general. And so the question is, does one attend to oneself more primarily or the other in this duo act? And she says, take care of yourself. And he says, take care of the other. And they're both right. So last time we explored taking care of self as the path in a way to the end of what we call self or the end of a a self-centric suffering being. We ended with the donut mind, remember? So emptiness in the heart of experience. That's about where we emptied, where we ended. So the sutta says... Caring for self, one cares for others. And I hinted at this in the beginning when I told the story of when I was a kid, a little kid, and I was sent to a funk chair. Right? And I found in that place that I went in a bit angry, frustrated, and I found an inner resource and I came out and that that had a benefit naturally for the family. Because if I wasn't I had cared for self in that very simple way that that had a natural ripple effect. There's a beautiful image from the uh, Vietnam War when uh, there were people trying to escape Vietnam, boat people, and Thich Nhat Hanh tells this story. And there would be people that would all be crammed into a boat. And they had to go through these high seas uh, to make it to Thailand, I believe. And some of the boats made it and some of them didn't. And it said that the boats that had one, at least one person on them that were calm, had a much better chance of surviving the treacherous journey than those that didn't. So to me, this is a beautiful expression, and we can probably reflect in our own lives in times when we have been that that calm. Well, I'm sure we can reflect on times we wish we had been. (laughs) But that naturally there's a ripple effect. And we'll explore this more as we go on. 
Well, why wasn't the person on the boat? By all the difficult conditions, why were they able to maintain their equanimity? Well, our path, is, if, as we've been exploring, is the one where we develop. And I hope these reflections tonight will help us both in the context of our retreat, and we'll explore some of the movements that we've been doing formally, and also prepare, us, prepare the ground for going home. Because very much this sutta, and even the way we've been teaching here the whole week, is very much a relational practice. And to me, I love this sutta because this teaching because it really works with this dynamic, taking care of yourself, the moment, taking care of others. And that's a flow that we have to go through in life all the time. So the, the, the boat person say, why, did they, why could they stay calm? Or what is the fruit? And, and from the point of view of the path, we cultivate enough concentration and then we start to be able to see into all those things which in a way well, we see into the nature of life, it's change. And practically, we often see into those things which block a quality of clear equanimity. Sleepiness, restlessness, judgment, boredom, all these energies. And in a very simple way, we see into the movements of getting caught in things that are arising. And we work with that again and again from the place of awareness. So one analogy is that when the mind doesn't, when all these things keep coming and we don't get caught, then that's where we, where we see them. So we're not rejecting, yet we're not get, indulging. Then that's where, we find, that's where we find our freedom, right? So when I was, when I was a kid, um, uh, we used to, I used to be brought fishing because there were a bunch of people in my family that liked to fish. And uh, I didn't like to fish. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even, I shouldn't say this. I think we're like three samurai up here, right? But uh, I'm going to come across as a wimp right now because I didn't even like putting, putting the uh, worm on the hook. I just, I didn't like it. And then when they put it at the end of the dock, this was in upstate New York, we go in the summers, they'd put, the, they'd put it down in the water, the line, and go fishing, and I would hope that the fish wouldn't catch it because I didn't want to get caught. Now, I was a bit hypocritical then, and I still am now because I like fish. <laughs> so I'm not going <laughs> to talk about that side of it. But I would wish that the fish would not, it would not go for the bait on this little hook. And in a lot of ways, that's what our practice is, right? There's all these little hooks with bait on them that are dangling in front of us. And sometimes they go, you think that's pleasant? And then the other way, right? And sometimes we say, aha, I'm a fish. There's enough food in the sea. I don't need that juicy worm, right? I don't need to be seduced by it. So that's in a way what our what our practice is. And when we do that, think of the consequences of that in our life, if we hold that. In the beginning of retreat, we worked with ethics to create a safe container. Well, where do you think those ethics came from? Where does non-harming come from? 
where does kindness come from? Where does speech that is well, non-harmful, action sexually, etc., substances that are not harmful, where does it come from? Well, a mind that isn't chomping on the hook with the bait on it, it's floating by, knowing what it needs, but it's not getting pulled here and there, which is where reactivity comes from. So when we don't get hooked, think of what it would be like. It's a little idealistic. Uh, but when I was growing up in a little town in New Hampshire, we didn't lock, our family didn't lock our doors for 20 years. And maybe some of you have that same experience. And it was very safe. It, we, we just ran around the neighborhood freely, and it was just a very safe environment. And you relaxed in that. So just for a moment, just think what it would be like if... People weren't catching the hook all the time and acting out. People knew what they needed, didn't, didn't act in ways. They created a culture where there's a lot, where we have to be guarded, okay? where we take things that aren't given, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, if we cared for self and it expanded to its full potential of non-arming, which the ethics, the natural ethics of respect for life come from, then that would create cultures of that. And the ideal in, in the Buddha Dharma is that peace starts at home. If you want, like the Dalai Lama says, if you want to have a, a peaceful family, you better have a peaceful heart. If you want to have a peaceful community, you got to have some peaceful families et cetera, et cetera, to the whole world. So to me, that's a wonderful expression of where this teaching is going, that if you really just take care of yourself, and by this, it means taking care of the moment, taking care of our reactivity, working skillfully, that there are wonderful natural ripple effects. So taking care of self, one takes care of others. Well, how about taking care of others? One takes care of oneself. So for me, this touches in on a number of levels. What is it when we place our heart, when we open it into something bigger? What does that do? Just outside of any formal path. Often, it moves us beyond ourselves. And it allows us to touch energies and community that's bigger than we were in before. It takes a lot of courage, too, often. In the teachings, like, how many people here are, have done activist work or have done things where you believe in something which is for the greater good, in a way, and that you, you hold up for it and, you, and you, you, stand, you stand for it and you work for it? Good. And when that happens, is there... There may be a lot of things, and actually it's a very interesting place to work because a lot of work that's been done in the name of something bigger, others first in this sense. Uh, my mother was very involved with the peace movement, and I, there was a lot of anger. <laughs> so it wasn't peace starting at home. It might have looked like it, like they did the sit-ins in Seabrook at New Hampshire where they have, still have a running power plant. I may use the electricity, I don't know, but... Um, 
But there was a lot of, they looked peaceful on the outside. They didn't do anything. But on the inside, there was a lot of oppositional energy, a lot of rage. And a lot of times that, that fuels action. But it's just an interesting question as to what are the consequences if we don't actually start with peace at home and we bring it into that realm. You leave it open. That's an exploration because I don't actually have a conclusion. But I've seen a lot of, a lot of peace can be actually inside war. And when we really start to touch the nature of the non-reactive heart and mind and the reactive heart and mind, we start to see the natural, the natural outflows. They're called effluence of when the mind is wanting and not wanting and not seeing clearly and acting powerfully out of that place. And the opposite of that, when the heart is clear. So you can be aligned with something greater and it can become from a very clear place as well. And it's often mixed, right? A lot of our practice here is actually working with that which is blocking. So we work with the, we work with what's arising, but this is the movement of touching in with something bigger that can be a powerful opening force in our lives. In the, in the Buddha Dharma and in many spiritual traditions, there's a power of idealism that, that touches the heart, a kind of motivational energy that is in a way, it's very much other first, but it's not necessarily other first in the way of just action concretely on the ground. So this can really, these energies, when used skillfully, can open the heart tremendously. So I'd like to read a couple of quotes that I think touch this. And one is from St. Francis of Assisi. And it says, uh, Grant, that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. So these are all others first, right? To be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in the giving that we receive. And it goes on. The, something from the uh, Tibetan tradition uh, by Shantideva. He's the, same, he's the same teacher that said we could, it's more effective to put leather on your feet than try to cover the whole world with leather. Remember last time? Basic mindfulness practice. He says, may I be a protector of abandoned beings, a guide for those who tread the path. And for those who wish to cross, may I be a boat, the road, the bridge. May I be a lamp for those who need a lamp, the plant that heals, a wish-fulfilling tree. So these are qualities, and when I read, uh, these are devotional qualities, aren't they? And on a logical level, uh, maybe they're, sometimes they're so impossible or, or logically impossible that they actually crack our brains a little in a good way. We can't be a bridge, right? For, we can't be a bridge across a road, we're humans. We can't literally be these things but we can open our hearts to the movement that is a devotion that the heart is really willing to open itself to something much, much greater and deeper. And these powers can be strong motivational forces. We can also get caught, the shadow side is we can get caught in idealism, can't we? We can get caught in formulas and things that make us feel good but they don't necessarily translate to really working hard in our practice. 
But there are great stories of people that have taken these that have, that have really run with them. Like there are great stories of yogis that have spent many, many, many years in caves. And then they really cultivated these qualities so that they came back and had wonderful capacity to help beings. It's said that the Buddha himself was one of these beings. I don't really know how karma works or about all that. <laughs> um, but it does seem that when there's a, an intention and a lot of work put towards it in a way that is bigger than ourselves, that hmm, it opens the heart at least deeply it can. So this is in an intentional way, a motivational way, putting others first. Now, Gandhi had a good example of, of not getting trapped in idealism of this when he did things for others on the ground. So he was interviewed once um, about why he went and helped people in the villages. So he had all these you know, land reclamation movements and all kinds of um, salt movements and other things. Actually, did he do land reclamation? He did all, well, he took back India. Okay, that's a land reclamation. <laughs> Big scale. <laughs> uh, so he was asked, did he do this, out, did he do this for others? And he said, I do it for myself. So in a way, and I don't, I'm not trying to get in his head, but in a way, the sense that doing actions for others actually is nourishing our own heart is quite wonderful. Now, it's tricky. It's tricky because a lot of times we have to care for ourselves radically, and we come so radically we come on retreat. We step out of normal life for periods of time, sometimes because we're kind of burned out because we've been helping others, caring for others. Right? So we can, we can get caught in the outer movement in a way that doesn't help us, but often that's, we're actually not, we're not filled with what are the qualities in the sutta that it says you should have when you care for others? Sympathy, kindness, care, right? Patience, all these qualities. So we have to look at what it actually means. And it means this movement of the heart which can very much translate into movement of action, which is often compassion. Or say in the case of Sedeka, it's just a sensitivity to the greater, all right? So if two people are walking and one, I mean, working together and one person is taking care of themselves, they're also aware of the other. And that's a lot of on the ground what our, what our practice is, right? It's that quality of, in relationship of caring We'll talk more of that, of that later as well. So in the, in the traditional Buddhist path, the act of opening the heart practically in ways that are bigger than ourselves, uh, generosity, and I think you had, a, you had a talk on that earlier today, right? A Donna talk. When I went to Asia, it was interesting. When I went, I became a monk and practiced in Thailand and a bunch of diff different situations. Um, but in the Theravada tradition, which is what we're uh, teaching from, the insight tradition comes from, um, I thought it was this simple path of sila, which is ethics, right? And then concentrating the mind and then wisdom. That's what we've been practicing, right? Well, the path actually is 
over there it's taught as uh, dana, sila, samadhi, panya. Maybe you already got this earlier today, I don't know. <laughs> but generosity is used to open the heart so that it can do the inner work. So villagers, when I was a monk, you'd go around, the villagers, which didn't have much, would put rice and little whatever things they had in your bowl. And they were, you could tell, they didn't have that much. They were opening their hearts. It was an offering. And in practice, practice when it's unbalanced, in the West we get high teachings. We want wisdom, and it, good. <laughs> but often we have to have wisdom, and then when we get in there and we realize, oh, that means I need some concentration. So I gotta do that work. And then we realize I'm still stuck. Well, maybe it actually works to open the heart as well, to work on this level where we look to doing simple things which open the heart. So generosity, generosity can be giving of things, it can be giving of time, energy. Often in our, often in, in our path, generosity is just giving ourselves the space to really listen to another to really be present, to offer our being in a way. And that when we do that, that actually creates the conditions where we're more sensitive to work with creating harmony in our environment with others. And that supports us deepening in our practice. So it's quite wonderful in a certain way, in a developmental way, how this sense of giving supports the inner process so others, taking care of others in these ways, supports taking care of ourself. So what happens in real life? Caring for self, caring for other. Well, We've been caring for self here, in a certain, just using this language, right? We're actually caring for no self, if you believe in the, <laughs> in the teachings here, <laughs> the certain scheme we're given. And we haven't had to do too much of caring for other, have we? In a certain way, we actually, as we've opened the instructions, we've actually moved into a place where we're practicing through mindfulness, caring for self and other. So when we practice mindfulness, we're taught that we look at our own body, breath, feeling, right? Thoughts, emotions, see change, see into the insubstantial nature of experience in moments. There's just this, that's it, right? So in a way we're, in technical language, we're contemplating internally what's happening here in the senses. Well, the Buddha described in the Satipatthana, which is the mindfulness, Sutta, he said we contemplate internally but also externally. So that, and of course we start inside because if we don't have a base, then what happens? Well, we know what happens, right? We don't see our reactions, we don't ground ourselves and we get caught. But contemplating internally and externally means that we actually work with ourselves and with others 
So here we've done that just as we've opened the, as we open the field of awareness. It just means that we're not, we're not looking at each other and dealing with relationship this way, but we've dealt with relationship a little, haven't we? Going through doors, sharing bathrooms, uh, food lines, <laughs> right? There's little ways where we've opened our own sensitivity into, we've had to, we're, we've been a living community together in silence, where we've opened our sensitivity to our own experience and to that of a greater field, which includes others. And we've, when we do that, we start to do what's very simple. And what we've been teaching it the whole time is we just, instead of caring for self and for other as dimensions, we're caring for the moment and what makes it up. And so when we're outside, we're also watching, we've been encouraged to watch our reactions inside, right? And we're inside, we have, as we're moving around and stuff, we have to be sensitive to the outside. So naturally, this becomes a field of mindfulness and the sense of separation between mindfulness, which is, remember, to coming back to the present in a way that's non-judgmental and remembering to do so with specific objects or just being present to whatever is vivid, right, more choicelessly. And the sense of this caring for other, which includes qualities of sympathy, of, of kindness, of patience, which are this we actually use more intentionally in relationship, but they're natural, it's interesting, they're natural fruitions of the mind that is clear and aware in the moment. Have you noticed that? That when you're not so full, when we're not buying in, when we're not hooked by something, and we're open and available, naturally there's a responsiveness that comes from that place. Good. So there's a teaching by uh, a Tibetan teacher that says, let's see, Gendun Rinpoche, the same one who had that beautiful poem, which will be out. Everyone can have a copy if they want. They leave. Awakened awareness spontaneously manifests all the qualities of compassionate action. So awakened awareness spontaneously manifests the qualities of compassion, which just to simplify, it just means this care, this sensitivity, this responsiveness, non-reactivity to others. So it's embedded in the quality of being really present. Now, our practice, (laughs) that's beautiful, right? But is it accessible all the time? And will will it be accessible in life? I don't know. So it's nice to know that when we're fully present and we've been teaching this and we, as we practice choiceless awareness more and more or just being present, there's just life and there's just knowing. And we learn more and more to trust that energy and whatever makes up life. Now that's good and that's nice, but also it's, life is messy. And we go home, it's good to have, it's good to know how to work with concrete, messy life situations. So I'd like to give a few examples in my own life of this interplay, this working with the same exact, actually, techniques we've been working with here, grounding and steadying in the breath, the body, sense of breathing with, or a sense of removing ourselves, like practicing shamatha. Like, remember our little groundhog the other day? Go in our little hole where we can breathe and take some breaths and be, and just seeing how these actually play in the fire of relationship.
So, so 25 years ago, or no, more than that, actually, a lot more than that, when I was in my little funk chair and I was six. So let's fast forward about 25, 30 years. And so I went to visit my mom. I'd spent many years in Asia doing my imitation of a cave practice, which meant you know, a bunch of different countries, a lot of practice. Um, and I came home, and I was starting to be part of the world again a little bit after most of a decade in Asia. And I wanted to work things out with my mom, right? So, and she was game. She's a good mama. So I'd go visit her, and uh, we'd have these discussions. We'd just talk freely about, and we both had enough skills, about what it was for us, what we'd gone through in terms of the separation of a mother and child and all, that, all the emotions that went with that. And do you think it was easy? No. But we stayed at it. And it wasn't, we weren't in therapy with anybody else. And, uh, we, just, we just did it. And I started a habit, because of my training, every once in a while, I would just, and this went on for intermittently for many months. Uh, I would, I would, when, when things got heated sometimes, I would just leave. I would say, can I have a little time out, right? Oh, by the way, with a funk chair, now it's called a timeout chair, right? That's what I heard. These guys taught me. It means you take a little time out. Okay, fine. So I would take a little, I wouldn't go to a timeout chair. I would just say, Mom, I need a minute. I'd walk away and I would do some mindful breathing. Maybe a little mindful walking, but usually I'd stop, close my eyes, and I'd really do some mindful breathing. Then I'd regain my center a little bit. And I'd come back. And I did this a number of times. No one never said anything. I just thought it helped me chill me out a little bit. So then one time it was getting heated, and she said, she said, Matthew, Will you go do that breathing thing? It always works better when you come back. <laughs> so sometimes it's good to actually take a pause and to get a little space and get our center again, right? Find our seat a little bit. There's another example which is much more contemporary uh, which is we might call a little more advanced practice, but I don't know. It's um, recently, and uh, this was actually with my partner. And you can all, you can relate to these types of things, I'm sure. You have patterns, repetitive patterns, where you trigger each other, you make it a little annoyed, certain things. So there was one cycle that was going on, and I was getting a bit annoyed, and I had been. It was the same conversation we had many times for weeks and months, and right? Uh, and the same thing comes up. And I just blamed her every time. I was like, if you would just, and I, even, I didn't even, even if I didn't say it, I would feel it. And I'd be trying to work with what was inside, but not too successfully. And then one time, and she doesn't know any of this, one time as I was in there just trying to work with it, I just got this, I just was staying with what was coming up and trying to be present. And I just got this real sense that the anger and the story about her were totally separate. And it wasn't her fault. And this, was, this reaction was happening right in here. It was right here. And I was seeing clearly the forces of the mind that was really strongly pushing something away and it was, like, it was like I had to, for that moment, 
I had a little bit of leather on my feet. Because I knew it was in, I knew the world. I wasn't trying to change her behavior. I wasn't trying to put leather, like, no, you have to be this way for me not to have this feeling. It was right there, and it, it went away. And something fresh came out of the moment. See, she doesn't even know that. I never talked about it with her. Something, and this, something fresh came out of the moment. Because when, we, when I saw into that, what was left? When you see into those energies as they move, but you don't cling, something else is there. So there's a very famous teaching from uh, Shinryu Suzuki that says in the uh, beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. And in the expert's mind, there are a few. So that was a moment of giving up expert mind. Just a moment. I was right. And would you rather be right or be free in the moment? The Buddha on his enlightenment night, he, um, the myth goes that he was sitting, he was really in his, I don't know if he was in his sits bones, he was really present. All the factors were balanced, he'd seen clearly, and he was awake. And so these forces came to test him. So this is the story. So one force that came to test him was the form of seductive, beautiful women. They wanted to tempt him off his seat. They wanted to him to get hooked. But he didn't move. He also didn't repress the energy. He didn't feed it, and they went away. And then anger came in the guise of armies, spears being thrown at him. They said raging drunken elephants. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't move. And he didn't react. And they went away. And then this guy's name, uh, I guess the creator of all this energy is called Mara. It's often depicted as this, this force that's like this, this big demon-type being, and that inside it is all the realms of life, and he controls life. But the Buddha was outside of his reactive grip, his cyclical react reactions. So Mara came and said, hey, Buddha, you're pretty good. I'm ad-libbing a bit. Why don't you come with me? Because we can rule the universe. So he's seduced by power. And he said, no. And then finally, Mara said to him, what right do you have to be sitting there? What gives you the right? Really? And he took his hand, and you can see this, right behind us. And he touched the earth as his witness. And it said the earth shook. So he touched the moment deeply. And that's what we do in our practice when we're deeply in the moment and the forces pushing and pulling, they can be there in many guises, but we don't feed them or reject them. And so when this came up in my, when I was having this little uh, normal relational interaction, 
What came to my mind right before I, before I let it go? Mara, I see you. Because I saw these energies as forces that were actually not me or mine. And so that's a level of practice. That's practicing right in the fire of relationship. And that's a willingness that's supported by our formal practice. It can be removing ourselves. It can actually be trying to stay grounded, right? So we don't lose our seat. So we're right there. So these are ways of taking and honoring the moment, the other person, ourselves, and what's arising, taking care of self and other. Uh, Life's pretty messy though, isn't it? And I think some, um, some attitudes are very important to have. And the main one is the attitude of, of being willing to learn and in a way being willing to be humble with ourselves through being present and learning. So the, the word uh, humus, which is of the earth, all right, it's like what stuff grows out of. It's related to human and also the word humble. So our humanness and our humility and our willing to be in the stuff of life, that stuff grows out of. I think it's a wonderful image because we have to be willing to be in it, don't we? And we have to be willing to make mistakes and to learn from our mistakes because we value awareness. We value being free in the moment more than we value being right. Because we learn over time when our practice takes hold that it's a better quality of living when we can be free, when we can be present. We test that. But it's not easy because we have a lot of habit energy, don't we? And even, even when we're, we're working, just if you reflect, even when we're working with, say, uh, being generous to open our hearts. So I did a little example here. It can get messy very quick. So uh, we came here, and staff is wonderful. We've been taken care of incredibly well. Um, but when we came in, uh, Larry didn't have any towels in his room. So I gave him my towels, right? Ah, I'll be generous. And then I realized that I didn't have any towels. <laughs> so what did I do? Well, <laughs> first I thought, that's okay. <laughs> and then I thought, no, it's not. And I thought, I need a towel. And I remember saying to Larry, and I remember the tone of my voice, and inside I said, I need a towel. <laughs> so I went immediately into greed mode. And then I broke the precept of not taking that which is not given. I went to two rooms down where the guest who was going to stay there hadn't arrived, and I took his towels. 
So that's life, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I don't really have much to say after that. <laughs> so I don't think I will. Ha, ha, ha.